I, I think one of the benefits of the pandemic is that not being in a church, physical location like this together, um, just makes us realize just how special this is and, and what a holy ground that we tread when we gather together like this. Um, and that is kind of how I felt um, when uh, Pastor Paul asked me a few weeks ago um, and, uh, to preach. And when I asked him what topics that he thought would be good, he mentioned, of course, uh, you know, it's always in his pastoral heart, the fact that so many people are transitioning. And of course, you know, just starting with my own life, with my son uh, who graduated uh, on Friday, um, you know, so there's this, uh, so I was thinking about that, but to be honest, I think whatever he said, I would have said, okay, great, I'm going to preach out of the book of Revelation. Why? Because for the last six months or so, um, and I blame it on, on uh, Jonathan there, you know, the, uh, when we got to a point where we um, uh, decided to start a new series of studies on the, on, on, among, with the boys, uh, he said, hey, you know, he wanted to study the book, uh, book of Revelation. Um, and so, okay, I've never really studied it. And to be honest, I've always kind of stayed away from it because as you guys know, um, Book of Revelations has probably caused more controversies, more splits, more um, uh, uh, sex, and more um, even cults than any other book of the Bible. I'm just curious, how many of you have read the whole entire book of Revelation? Wow, I'm, wow, cool. That says a lot about our church. Um, I remember um, the first time that I read it, cover to cover, reluctantly, because one Sunday I realized, you know, I had some extra time, and then I realized that, uh, you know, I'd kind of been putting off Book of Revelations, but I, was, but I thought, oh, well, I'll just read it. So uh, um, I just read the entire thing from chapter 1 to chapter 22. And by the time that I ended it, I was on my knees. I, a few times in my life, I really felt a little bit like of what Moses, have experienced, Moses experienced when he was um, uh, in front of the burning bush. And God told him to take off his shoes because he's standing on a holy ground. And I think when we, when we approach Book of Revelation, we should approach with that, with, with that. If not, by the time we read the whole thing, I think we'll come out like that. Why? Because at the core of uh, Book of Revelation is about, um, about martyrs. I think Pastor Paul mentioned several times, I think a few weeks ago, the word, Greek word for martyr has two, two meanings. Originally, it meant just to be a witness, like you're a court and you have to testify and, and be a witness in a case. But over time, the word martyr in the Christian context came to added a new layer of meaning of those because of their testimony that Jesus Christ is the Lord would lose their lives. And so more than any other books of the Bible, Book of, uh, book of Revelations is about martyrs. In fact, the only person aside from John who is specifically named is a, is a person named Antipas, who was one of the first early martyrs of the church. And, uh, and not only is, are, are he, martyrs of Christians holy, the most significant martyr, of course, in the book of Revelations is Jesus Christ himself, who is referred many times as the true and faithful witness martyr. Um, the other reason why book of Revelations should be treated with extra care is because at the core of, of, um, of it is worship. Right, um, we aside, a book of uh, we see in the book of Psalms uh, calls to worship, but we never see worship quite like it is in the in the book of Revelations because we see all of heaven, all of the heavenly realm that we're invisible to, that's invisible to us, breaking out in worship time and time again, and we know that the, at the end of history, 
the purpose of history will end up in worship as well. And so that's why I chose a song, Here I Am to Worship. And again, that's a song that sometimes, you know, I love to sing that song in a church setting like this. But what the book of Revelation reminds us that, that, that worship is just not something that happens once a week or twice a week at church. It is at the very core of the reason that the universe exists and why I exist and why you exist. So it's a long introduction, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do tremble. And I pray that somehow that you would give us a little bit of the cosmic view and a view of Jesus Christ and of his surpassing greatness. That as we spend the next 30 minutes meditating upon Revelation chapter 5, that you would cause our heart to tremble and cry out with the entire universe, worthy is the lamb who was slain. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, the, the title of this message, I called it, uh, What Christian Success Looks Like, and it was intentional. I split the word Christ out of Christian, because as I thought about how we view success as a Christian or a non-Christian, and sometimes as churches and not churches, it's no different than the way that the world views success, the way I view success. This was very plain to me, uh, came kind of more startlingly like uh, new to me uh, this weekend because we celebrated, uh, we, uh, my, my family um, celebrated two, uh, or attended two great celebrations. The first celebration was of course on Friday night when, uh, when we saw our son graduate from high school. Uh, my wife shed a lot of tears, why? I mean, more than, I think all mothers do, but she carried an extra burden, um, having homeschooled him since he was, you know, toddler until he, was, uh, he finished seventh grade, and then uh, sending him off for the first time to public school at, you know, eighth grade, you know, and being nervous how he's going to survive the lunch line and the locker combination and all of that. And so when my wife sat there seeing my son graduate, of course, she was filled with tears. That was Friday night. Saturday morning, we uh, attended by virtually, by Facebook Live, funeral of Pastor Ed Lee. Um, I know Vivian knows, and uh, uh, April, of course, uh, here knows as well. Pastor Ed Lee was a, a graduate of Dallas Seminary, and since the, I think around 1990 or maybe earlier, was a, uh, a very active and influential pastor at probably the most, uh, one of the largest, if not the most influential uh, church, a Chinese church in the Dallas area, the Dallas Chinese Bible Church. Uh, um, and uh, he, uh, uh, three weeks ago, just, um, you know, very unexpectedly just uh, fell down uh, because of a, a rupture in, in, in his brain. And uh, three weeks later, three weeks of coma, he passed away just a couple of days ago. And uh, he was not just somebody who baptized my wife but who really uh, opened up Christian life to her and to many other people. And uh, it was heartbreaking, to be honest, to see um, the, both the, the loss, I mean, the sense of loss that people expressed, but at the same time, celebration of his life and, uh, and of his faithful ministry um, his, for 30 plus years. Those two ceremonies just really made me ponder once again how different Christian idea of success versus worldly idea of success is. Um, I'm gonna, with that, I'm just gonna 
start. Okay. There we go. Let me read from Revelation chapter 5. And as we read this, uh, I want you to just, uh, yeah, also join in worship. But pay attention as I read this with this thought. What does this passage tell us about Christian idea of success versus my or our assumptions about success? Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a squirrel. Oops. Okay, can you still hear me, guys? Sorry about that. Okay. Then I saw um, in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and his seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The picture of success, the, I would suggest the ultimate picture of success um, is contained in the, in, in, the, in, in the first part of this chapter. When, uh, 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 when um, I'm sorry, uh, when, when John cries out, um, you know, weeps because no one was worthy enough to open, open the squirrels. Now, just even the description is a little bit strange, you know? And without getting into too much details about a cop, apocalypse and all those things, let me just, just briefly just explain why he was crying. So first of all, Book of Revelation is an apocalypse. It means that it, the word apocalypse means unveiling. It's unveiling something that is beyond this physical realm, and it can only be done through a divine agency. And in his case, through the Spirit, he goes into this, into the realm, the, 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 uh, not the, beyond the physical realm, the spiritual realm, and he sees things that very people have ever seen. He sees, in, in chapter 4, unfolding of, of worship around uh, God's throne at the very center. And, and the scroll here represents the fact that God is absolutely sovereign over history. There are no accidents. That God has planned from eternity past the fact that 
that, that he, would, uh, be, uh, he would set out to redeem fallen mankind. And within the scrolls, as we'll discover in the rest of the books, are, are the series of judgments that God will bring forth in order to bring about his kingdom. And the reason why uh, uh, John is weeping is because as much as he wanted to see the redemption of God's people and the defeat of evil, he realized that that cannot be done unless the seals of the scrolls are broken so that they can, so history can proceed. And, 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 and as he looked around and realized that there's no one who can open it, that's why he was weeping, because he was weeping because he was thinking that the coming judgment of God will be delayed or not happen. And then when he said, look, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, right? And again, part of the key of understanding Revelations is recognizing its connection to the rest of Scripture. This is one of the things that makes Revelations very, very special. In fact, about uh, almost 200, uh, over 270 verses out of the 400 or so verses of Revelation is actually a direct quote or allusion to the Old Testament. And some of you may re instantly uh, re realize, hey, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's Jesus. The prophecy about Jesus, the coming king, in, uh, in, in Genesis 49. The root of David is one of the expressions about the messianic king who will come and redeem his people, right? So we understand that. And then he says, the, root of the, the lion has conquered. And the word conquered is one of the key words of, uh, of this book. It's the word nikao from which you get Nike. Everyone knows Nike. It's victory. To triumph or to have victory. To conquer, to overcome. That's what, that's what it means. So when we hear the Lion of Judah and you, and you imagine this, this majestic kingly figure, you know, the king of the jungle who conquers, right? We think, oh yes, he's the one who's going to conquer the forces of evil. And here is the, the disjunction. To me, the, the really strange thing, which contains deep, deep insight. When in the, on one hand he hears, behold the line of the Lamb of Judah. But when he turns, what does he see? He says, I saw a lamb standing. And uh, I kind of marked out as though it had been slain, because in Greek, it actually says, having been slain. And it's kind of an odd construction. Right? The word standing is there because when you think of something being slain, it's dead. It's dead meat, literally. But he's, he's emphasizing the fact that the lamb is not only slain, but he's also standing, he's alive. And so we know again from this that he's referring to the fact that Jesus Christ is the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Our mind goes to Isaiah 53, and we see that how he, like a silent lamb, was led to slaughter. But it was through his obedient sacrifice that, that, that the provision for the forgiveness of sin is provided. And, and this, this, this junction between what he hears and what he sees, and the fact that who is worshipped is not the lion, one who looks like the lion, but one who looks like a lamb that was just slain, is, I believe, one of the keys to understanding and applying the book of Revelations to our lives. Let me just... Let me go on a little bit longer on this. Our idea of success, our idea of triumph and conquering, especially in the context of the fight between good and evil, between, uh, you know, uh, Christians and Muslims, or you name it, forces of evil, forces of, dark, uh, 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 forces of light and darkness, right? The word conquer conjures up 
this image of a victorious lion-like uh, uh, figure. But instead, the reality is, it's the lamb who conquered. What does that mean? That means that the one who conquered evil was conquered by evil. That he sacrificed himself. There's been no other military leader like this. Who follows a lamb who was slaughtered? This is the dilemma. And this is where our attention should focus on our own idea of what success is. Is success, does success look like lion triumphing? Or does success, can success look like a slaughtered lamb? I propose that the ultimate pattern of success, as we see in Jesus' own triumph over evil, that he overcame evil not with evil but with good through self-sacrifice, is the ultimate pattern of success that applies not only to Jesus but ought to apply to us as well. Following this section, listen to the, the, uh, the cries of, the, of the, these angelic beings around the throne of God who cry out, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God. A conqueror who conquers not by shedding blood, but by giving his own blood. And he did so to ransom people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let me just uh, submit, uh, I mean, uh, highlight three things. First of all, that uh, this, this pattern of success, first of all, involves a silent submission to the will of God. Jesus went to the cross, not because, uh, not because he had to, maybe not even because he wanted to. He went because he agreed to God's will for him and for the universe. Isaiah 53. And the reason why I did so was for the purpose of God. This, the purpose that God had set out from the beginning in Genesis, that human beings created in his image would be vice regents, would rule along with him. We failed that. And then once again, when he uh, uh, redeems Israel, in Exodus chapter 19, it, uh, he declares to the Israelites that, um, that he will make them a kingdom, his kingdom of priests. And again, Israel failed. But God didn't give up. And, uh, and, and, and finally, this God's original intent, his purpose for humanity is fulfilled by Jesus himself who conquers as the Lamb. Now, the third aspect of this is, is why? Why does God do this? And, and, and to kind of use a military language, he does this to share the spoils. So what is the, the, what is the outcome of the victory? That, that humanity would reign on the earth with Christ. So as the victor, he shares his victory with the people that he himself redeemed.
I believe that those three things are what I would call the metrics of Christian success. Success that looks like the way Jesus achieved success. His way of success, not our way of success. Was it worth it? Was Jesus' sacrifice worth all, the, all that he's gone through? Well, if you go on to the next, next part of the chapter, you hear that every creature in heaven, on earth, and, and on the sea, all crying out to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So in chapter 4, all the living creatures uh, 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 worship and praise God who sits on the throne. And now it's God uh, through and with the Lamb, because of the Lamb. Uh, and you see this universal eruption of praise. Uh, last week, I wasn't here, but Pastor Paul preached one, uh, Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you nations. That, is the fulfill, that becomes fulfilled here, right? The glory of God, the universal glory of God. And along with that, the worship of God, the universal worship of God, for which universe exists. Psalm 100 is just one of the many places. So was, was it worth it? If you consider glory of God to be the supreme pleasure and the worship of God to be the supreme glory, I mean supreme good, then yes, it was worth it. But here's a part. There's a, there's a sense where the, the conquering or the victory or the triumph of Jesus is complete. It is done, but it is not yet complete. What do I mean by that? In the earlier scene, you saw all the living creatures, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, Worshiping God. And there's one conspicuous absence. You know what it is? It's to human beings. Why? Because in the time of this vision, the, the, the people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue has not come into God's kingdom yet. You see, Jesus' work was completed on the cross when he provided the provision for our uh, redemption. But the propagation of the good news through which all the people who are to be redeemed will be redeemed and brought into the kingdom has not started, um, uh, didn't start until his ascension and, and has not stopped yet. All of us are part of the process. This is why in Colossians chapter 1, 24 through 9, this is why Paul says, now I rejoice in, in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh, what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. What do you mean? How can Christ, there, there be anything lacking in Christ's sufferings for us? He says they're still lacking. Why? For the sake of his body, which is the church. I become its servant by the commission of God gave me to present to you the word of God in his fullness. He's the one, he's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone, every one of those that are mentioned, in the book of life, will, be, will become fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul got it. Paul realized his purpose, and Paul realized the purpose of the church. That, that upon the finished work of Christ, uh, Christ on the cross, we, those who have been who, who are brought into the church, must continue in propagating and in proclaiming and, and, and working with everything that we have through the Spirit to make sure that every one of those for whom Christ died will be presented fully mature in Christ at the end of Re uh, Re Revelation. Why is that so important? Because this is why you and I are alive today. 
This is why we're alive. There are many, many reasons and, and, and things that we pursue each day. And, and, and when something goes right, we feel a, a measure of success, right? When, when Noah got his diploma, when he got into the college that, that, he, that he wanted to go to, there was a great sense of success and achievement that we felt. When Pastor Ed passed away, there was incredible sadness because we feel like he has so much more that he could do on earth. And there were. But from this perspective, he finished everything that God has sent him to do. Which means for us, we're still here. That's not true. We still have work to do. We still have an opportunity to, to participate, participate in proclaiming this message and, and, and helping this body to continue to grow and mature. Now, for those who are transitioning, you know, actually, before we transition into a new job or new career or new school, I mean, as a matter of fact, before this year, when Noah and I and my, uh, my wife started thinking about his college plans, what he's going to study, where he's going to go, I really wish that I thought more about this. Because I confess that many of the things that led, to make the, led us to make the decisions that we did was in pursuit of success, but not this kind of success. It was a different kind of a success that all of us pursue, are used to pursuing. GPA, reputation, future career. And all those things are good things. You know, for me, I remember when I was telling, I told Noah, hey, two things you ought to really consider about college. One, make sure that it's a place where you can you know, learn a lot so that you can be prepared to the next stage that can help you go on to the job or the professions that you need, one. And the two thing is make sure you go to a place where it doesn't cost a lot of money because you don't want to come out of college with the debt. Right? That was it. That was my criteria. But as I think about this, I realize this passage really challenges me. Maybe the greater purpose of Noah as a follower of Christ is not just go to a college where he can learn and be prepared for some sort of a work that will prepare him for the next 50 years of his life. But maybe it is to participate in proclaiming Christ and in bringing about this, this great ingathering of his elect, of his people, into the church. If I thought of that as the foremost things, would that have influenced how we went about this process? I believe it, 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 it would have. Same thing for professions. How many times have I chosen jobs, moved to cities? How many times have I taken huge steps of faith with just a very limited view of what is in my view, success for myself. Now, it doesn't mean that God is not someone who will say, okay, if you don't do it my way, I'm going to ignore you. No, he's constantly with us. And he uses even our sometimes things that we do unintentionally. He uses that. But the difference is this. The difference is this, that if we filter our decision-making through the lens of the cross, and the lamb who was slain, we have the joy, like Paul had, of living a life full of meaning and with no regrets. And looking back one day and realizing that our small contributions added to this glorious end 
for which Christ died. I suggest that this Jesus' triumph of, of five, how he conquered, become our roadmap and our methodology and our test. Um, in fact, we see that in Revelation 12, another, another uh, a scene of worship that unfolds, which includes Christians who've come into the kingdom of God in, in heaven. Here's what the, uh, 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 John sees. He says, and they, 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 the believers, have conquered him. Same word, Nikao, conquered him, Satan. Same way that Jesus did, by the blood of the Lamb. Through faith in Jesus and the precious blood that he shed for us, and by the word of their testimony, meaning that not that they added to Jesus' sacrifice, but they continue the work that Jesus started by, through their testimony, through their martyrdom, to propagate his message from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. For they love not their lives even unto death. How true that was. Literally, they made this passion for, 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 the, for the testimony of Jesus, the center point of their lives, and, this, and, and regarded everything else as far inferior in value. 14.4, another scene. They, the same people, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I think, I love the description and the image. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Follow the Lamb. Follow the Lamb who's going to, be, who's going to get slaughtered. Follow the Lamb, even though he, looks like, he may look like the biggest loser you've ever seen. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. Silent submission to the will of God. Selfless sacrifice for the purpose of God. Sharing of the spoils with the children of God. These are the bedrock principles I see that I believe and I hope and I pray will become my guiding stones and my understanding and filter of what it means to be successful. Unfortunately, when we look at history, this was not the path that was taken many times. Pastor Paul is nodding because he knows history. Throughout history, Christians in the church have not always followed this path. In fact, it's been opposite in many ways. Just as in one example, February 27, 380, that should be a day of mourning for every Christian. Why? That's the day when Christianity became the official religion of Roman Empire. When the two emperors of the East and the West pronounced this, uh, proclaim this. Let me just read to you what it says. We, the kings, the emperors, we authorize the followers of this law to assume the title of Catholic Christians. This is when Christians became Catholic, when they became universal. Everyone in Roman Empire became essentially Catholics. But as for the others, since in our judgment they are foolish madmen, meaning those who still reject Christianity, we decree that they shall be branded with the ignominious name of heretics and shall not presume to give to their uh, uh, coventicles the name of churches. They will suffer in the first place the chastisement of the divine condemnation. They read parts of Revelations for sure. And in the second, the punishment of our authority, meaning we're going to conquer them, not as the Lamb, but as the Romans would do it which in accordance with the will of heaven, they assume, we shall decide, we shall decide to inflict. This is the saddest day in Christendom, right here, right? 
Unfortunately, this pattern continued on. Look at the Crusades. Who thought that the way to conquer the invading Muslim armies in Jerusalem was to go and fight them and conquer them and killing them? Who thought that even in the Reformation for Luther, right? Someone as, as much as we love and respect Luther, who thought that the way for him to combat heretics in his views, Anabaptist, forefathers of Baptists here, is to suppress them even to the point of death. I don't know if you, if you heard this, but the favorite method of the German Lutherans in, ki in, in killing uh, Anabaptists was to drown them. Hey, they, they, they want to be baptized so much, we're going to just put them in the water, under the water, and not let them get up. Even my hero Calvin, when he had the, when he had the sword, when he became the secular authority and power of Geneva, executed. So-called, I mean, her not so-called, they were heretics. What about in our days? We've seen the last 23 years that the church has become, we've lost any kind of credibility we have in, 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 in the marketplace and in the mainstream society because of our, of our decision to align ourselves and to grab political power, thinking that by having political power, we're going to conquer this culture that we, that, that we, that we know to be ungodly rather than taking the path of the lamb who was slain. You know, it's easy to, in some ways, to criticize governments like China because they are so obviously like the beast and the whore of revelations. They are driven by satanic uh, uh, motivations, using power to crush people, especially Christians. It is easy to talk about Nazi Germany, right? And it's easy to talk about Islamic govern governments like Saudi Arabia and uh, Pakistan and Iran that still kill Christians like the Romans did, or North Korea. But it is much harder for us to look ourselves in the mirror. And part of that is because we've been blessed with so much religious freedom and so much heritage and tradition as a Christian nation. I think the better example, and the one that is actually more close to us, is actually get it given in book of, uh, book of Revelations. This other example of the church wielding a sword actually doesn't exist in the book of Revelation, you know. But the greater danger is this. It's the church of Laodicea. Paul, as, you, as you guys know, uh, John writes to seven churches, and he addresses seven dangers to the churches. And Jesus Christ um, uh, evaluates each one of them and tells them what they're doing well and what they're not doing well. There's only one church, the last church, that has nothing, Jesus has nothing good to say. And ironically, as I see it and as I read it, it is the church that is closest to our age, to us and our, our spiritual state. Let me just read this. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Were that you were... With that, you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich, I prospered, and I need nothing. But realizing that you are wretched, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Why Jesus criticizes them like this is actually very plain in the first verse. Like all the other seven letters, the first verse is the key. When Jesus says the words of the amen, I agree. The faithful and true witness. What he's telling them is that this is not what you guys are doing. 
This is a church that have stopped being a witness, that have stopped propagating, that meet without regards for the Great Commission, that no longer follow the Lamb wherever He goes to the ends of the earth. Why? Because they become rich. Part of it is this, that Laodicea was a rich church, I mean, rich uh, city. They were known for three things, which are all listed here. They were known for uh, their banking. This is the center, this is the banking center of Roman Empire, you know. It's, it's the Luxembourg and Switzerland, and, or Britain, or New York of their day. It's one. And two, um, they were also known for their textile industry. And they were known for their, uh, this special eye ointment self, which was famous. And through these things, it's a city that became rich. And like a lot of us here, because we live in the greatest and the most powerful and the richest uh, nation on the earth, we have, we've all prospered too. In this case, though, not saying this about us necessarily, but in their case, Jesus says that at, at the cost, what the cost of their becoming so prosper, being quote-unquote blessed to be in this rich city, is that they become completely self fish and self-absorbed and completely indistinguishable their lives became completely indistinguishable from the lives of the people around them and they lost their power of witness and they lost their desire for witness and in fact they even lost their desire for God because they say I need nothing I don't need God who needs God when I have everything that I want from God? If what I want from God is gold and clothes and security and, and medical benefits, who needs God? But Jesus says to them, yeah, you're actually wretched. You're pitiable. You're poor. You're blind. And you're naked from a spiritual sense. Rather than submission to the will of God, they actually, the re reason why they became so wealthy is that they either passively, at best, compromised with the Roman system. Because to have this kind of economic advantage in those times meant that you also uh, worshiped the emperor, that you also participated in all the idolatrous and sexually immoral practices that you had to do in order to be part of the trade unions. The, the big businesses of that time. That was the cost. And they just went with it. There's no way that they could be prosperous in this city unless you agree to worship, the, uh, worship Rome and the emperor. So they were either passively compromising or at worst, they were actively compromising. Yet they still came to church every week. Because again, the danger of, the, uh, of uh, idolatry in the Bible is not, there's very few exclusive idolaters in the Bible. It's always those who worship God of Israel along with the bells around them. That's been the, the lure of idolatry. And that's why Jesus says that you're blind. You're blind to the purpose of God. You're blind to your own condition. And, and furthermore, you're actually blind to the needs of the other churches rather than sharing what you have, as you see book of, in the book of Philippians, or, 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 the, or, or the churches of Macedonia, even though that they were poor, when they heard and realized that the church in Jerusalem, which was hundreds if not thousands of miles away, they gave donations. When you read the accounts of the seven churches, all of them separated by less than like 90 miles. 
Several churches were poor, but not Laodicea. So what that means is that, they, that rather than selflessly sacrificing for the purpose of God, instead, they were filled with just pride and self-reliance. My heart broke as I th- sat through and thought about these things because this is my state, my natural state. This is my default state. And I confess, perhaps, the condition of so many of our churches in this country and in this region. Quickly, what does Jesus say? He says, I'm about to speak up. By the way, when he says you're not either hot or cold, I used to always mean that, you know, like, you, you, like passion, right? You should be passionately for God or, 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 or just forget about God. You know, no, no, no. That's not what he's talking to. As some of you may know, Laodicea was surrounded by two cities, Hierapolis, which was six miles away, which was known for the hot water hot, uh, and, and hot springs, which people saw and, and people used for their medicinal benefits. And Colossae, which was another five, six miles away, was known for their cool springs, which people loved for its refreshment and, and the health benefits that it provided. So what Jesus is saying is that you're lukewarm, it means that basically you're useless. You're useless. That the lamb who wants to continue in bringing about the ingathering of all the God's people, to him, the church of Laodicea was completely useless because they were too self-absorbed, too blind to be of use. So he says to them, and I love this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. White garments so that you may close yourself uh, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And self to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, here's the word again. The conquers is passive or active compromise and pride and self-absorption. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to all churches that are in this condition. Listen to the stinging rebuke of Jesus. I pray that he would teach us to fear, a godly fear. I cannot imagine what it would mean for me to be lukewarm in the mouth of Jesus and to be, spun out, and to be spat out. There's nothing, that sh- there's nothing, no fear that, sh- that should be greater than the fear of that. As the song Amazing Grace says, it is grace that teaches us to fear. The first step in repenting is to genuinely be gripped by this fear as we understand our own condition. But notice also Jesus' tender and gracious words of love. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He loves us. He loved them. Let this remove our fear and let it disarm our pride. If Jesus loves us this way, if he knows us thoroughly inside out, why do I still stand aloof and proud? And notice the magnitude of Jesus' promise. Let it sink in. He's promising us that in the same way that he's sitting with the Father in the center of the universe, he's also calling us with this opportunity to sit with him as well. This passage, um, as you think about it, I hope, will help us to lead back to what it means to repent. The first thing is to just fellowship with Jesus. That's why he says, come, come. I mean, open the door so that I can, be, uh, I can come in and eat with you and you can eat with me. 
Jesus wants to commune with us. He wants, to be, he wants us to have in, intimate relationship with him every day. We need to sit at his feet. We need to converse with him. We need to eat his food rather than being too, too busy with all the other pursuits of our ideas of success. We need to ask God to change our vision. Change our vision. How do we change our vision so that we're not blind? I suggest one of the best ways is to read Revelations and other books that challenge us, that challenges our assumptions, and that moves us beyond our ideas of what life should be about. And, and then the next step is to clothe ourselves with good works. I'm kind of going backwards in the, in the way that John, Jesus says. Clothe ourselves with good works. Start doing the things that we know to be right. And finally, and here's, a, here's the hard part. When he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold. What is he saying? Of course we know salvation is by, by faith. What he's saying is consider the cost. Consider the cost of you following me. Consider the cost of what he meant for the man who finds the precious pearl in the field and sells everything that he has to follow Jesus. Consider the cost that he took Paul when he decided to follow Jesus. Follow the lamb wherever he goes. It's going to be costly to participate in what Jesus is doing. We need to consider the cost and hopefully pay the price, not for our salvation, but so we can participate and be part of what Jesus is doing. I just want to show you this picture of, a, oh, next one, Pastor um, Lee. Every picture I've seen, he's just this great big smile, and I believe he's smiling like he's never smiled like this. Because he did. From an earthly success, you know, his final church, I think 20, 30 people. He impacted a lot, lots of people, you know. I, I count a couple hundred people who are part of the online service. So, so in some ways, if we measure church through the lens of the success of the world, he wasn't very successful. But when I consider the impact that he's made on my wife, and through her, the impact he's made on me and my children, I can't wait to see him one day in heaven and say thank you for paying the cost of our coming into the kingdom and joining you and of our growth and maturity. And I pray that when we do gather for the final big ceremony in heaven, all of us will have the joy of hearing those words ourselves. Let's pray.